0: and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Let's pray together. We always think that summer will be less busy, holy one. We tell ourselves every year that if we can just make it through May, we'll get a break. We'll be poolside or at the snow cone stand. We'll dive deep into that stack of books that's threatening to topple off the nightstand. We'll lay in the backyard hammock every night and count lightning bugs. But then... Summer ball starts, perhaps a round of summer school along with camp and travel and a thousand other things. It turns out that we aren't less busy, just different busy, and we've almost convinced ourselves that this is just the way it is. Um, because we're feeling a little defensive, we'd like to point out that the psalmist says you neither slumber nor sleep. But also, Holy One, we we know in our bones that we can't live like this, always hurrying, always trying to do the most, always with every minute filled. Remind us that we have stories that tell us otherwise, stories which tell us that the opposite of work is not even play, but rest. That's one of the first of our sacred stories about you. After creating and caregiving, you took Sabbath. You were quiet. You went on a break. You were at rest. Surprise us, Holy One, with a moment of Sabbath. May we recognize it sooner rather than later. Then help us to make it a practice may your way become our way we pray in the name of jesus who showed us how amen our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel of luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. just then a lawyer stood up to test jesus teacher he said what must i do to inherit eternal life and he said to him, What is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I'll admit to you, I felt a little silly reading the parable to you. After all, this may be the most well-known parable of them all. It may be the most well-known biblical passages, period. It's crossed all kinds of boundaries and been used in all kinds of contexts, including politics. The parable of the Good Samaritan has been referenced in speeches by former President George W. Bush, Queen Elizabeth II, Margaret Thatcher, and Tony Blair. The list of hospitals whose names reference the Good Samaritan number in the thousands. These references are not necessarily bad. The parable of the Good Samaritan has, indeed, inspired many people to look after each other and has expanded our understanding of neighbor, and thus who we are obligated to help in times of trouble. For many, The finest sermon on this text comes from Martin Luther King, Jr., who invited us to consider the motivation of the priest and the Levite when they refused to come to the aid of the man in the ditch. I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me, King preached. It's possible these men were afraid, and so the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and this Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? This is why that man was good and great. He was great because he was willing to take a risk for humanity. He was willing to ask, what will happen to this man, not what will happen to me? This is what God needs today, King continued. Men and women who will ask, what will happen to humanity if I don't help What will happen to the civil rights movement if I don't participate? What will happen to my city if I don't vote? What will happen to the sick if I don't visit them? If I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? And it was then that King then left to help the sanitation workers. He went to Memphis, and it was there he was assassinated. Whatever the motives of the priest and the Levite king was correct. They only thought about themselves, not about the man in the ditch. And this reflection really presents challenge for us enough. There is an argument to be made that we should stick with King's interpretation of the text until we get it right. But as I mentioned last week, we are looking at these parables again for the first time. As Dr. Amy Jill Levine prompts us, the various appropriations and interpretations of the parable heard today are generally good news. What's not to like about helping the stranger and being charitable towards others? But those are not the messages the first century Jewish audience would have heard. They didn't need a parable to tell them to care for each other. They were already commanded to love both neighbor and the stranger. We heard the lawyer say that. Those Jews in antiquity would not be thinking of governmental resources or foreign aid. The Samaritan would not have reminded them of a secretary of state or a prime minister, nor would they have thought of the Samaritan as a stranger. To the contrary, they were all too familiar neighbors and all too familiar enemies The parable for them would not have been about looking for a fellow human being, and the parable is not an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? The parable is more provocative than that. We know this because of how Jesus tells the story. Jesus did not simply pull these three characters out of a hat for the purpose of this parable. The duo, the first two, anticipate in good folkloric fashion the appearance of the third figure. The first two set up the third. The priest and the Levite are the first and second to appear in the story because Jesus knew that they, his audience, would assume to know what was coming next, which would have been an Israelite. Dr. Amy Jill Levine explains that for Jesus' audience and for any synagogue congregation today, the third group is obvious. Mention a priest and a Levite, and anyone who knows anything about Judaism will know that the third person will be an Israelite. Ezra 10, chapter chapter 10, verse 5, speaks of the leading priest, the Levites, and all Israel. Nehemiah 11.3 states that in the towns of Judah, all lived on their property in their towns, the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. It's the religious equivalent to our finishing characters that come in threes. So we're going to play a little game this morning. Fill in the blank. Larry, Mo, and? Snap, crackle, and? Huey, Dewey, and Harry, Ron, and thank you, Millennials. (laughs) We're just all moving together into the 21st century. Okay, okay, back to the parable. Both priest and Levite should have stopped to help. The audience, surprised at this lack of compassion, would have presumed both that the third person would be an Israelite, and that that Israelite would stop to help. However, Jesus is telling a parable, and parables never go the way we expect. Instead of the anticipated Israelite, the person who stops to help is a Samaritan. In modern terms, this would have been going from Larry and Moe to Osama bin Laden. No one saw it coming. The shock and horror continues, because as spare as the earlier descriptions of the priest and Levite were, the text now lavishes attention on the Samaritan's actions. The robbers steal and wound while the Samaritan tins with his own goods. The bandits leave the man half dead while the Samaritan returns him to life. Whereas the priest and the Levite go out of their way to distance themselves from the victim, the Samaritan went to him and shows him compassion, translated as pity in the NRSV, which, but it means to be moved as to one's bowels, which were thought to be the seat of love and pity. And this is the word used to describe how Jesus responds over and over again when he heals Cast out demons, when he, when he learns news of others in distress, when he observes the crowd and sees that they are without a shepherd, he has a visceral reaction. He has compassion, pity on them. And this, this compassion is often the hook for the sermon, which again is not bad. We could all use a little more compassion. We could all use the practice of compassion. But to understand the parable, as did its original audience, we need to think of the Samaritans less as oppressed but benevolent, and more as the enemy who does the oppressing. For from the perspective of the man in the ditch, Jewish listeners might balk at the idea of receiving aid from a Samaritan. Here's why. According to the Bible, Samaria had an earlier name, Shechem, referenced first in Genesis 3:4. It was at Shechem slash Samaria that Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was raped. The second reference to Shechem Samaria is found in Judges 8 and 9, the story of the false judge, Abimelech, who murders his rivals. So to Jesus' Jewish audience, as well as to Luke's readers, the idea of a good Samaritan would make no more sense than the idea of a good rapist or a good murderer. Some geographical and historical context adds to our understanding, but it spans centuries, so I will admit to you that I am giving you a wildly oversimplified version. After the twelve tribes of Israel united monarchy split into two, the southern kingdom made its capital in Jerusalem, while the northern kingdom eventually made its capital in Samaria. Each of those kingdoms would take turns being conquered by outsiders, but they also fought between themselves about who was doing it right. And by it, I mean everything. From the Persian period in the late 6th century BCE to the time of Jesus, Jews and Samaritans remained at odds, each claimed to be the true descendant of Abraham, to have the true understanding of the Torah, the correct priesthood, and the right form of worship in the proper location. The enmity between the two groups waxed and waned, depending on the time, but for the most part, relations were decidedly not warm, which is why Jesus tells this parable. I am convinced this is true because, you see, there was an incident before Jesus tells this parable, and I think this incident alarmed Jesus enough to prompt him to specifically address this issue. Because we only read small excerpts of the text on Sundays, we have a tendency to forget to look at the placement, the what happens before and what happens after. We forget to look at the placement of the text within the text itself. Luke frames this parable as a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer, but It's not coincidental that this is where we find the story. You see, in the chapter just before this, in in chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, Luke recounts the following story. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, John and James, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to rain down from heaven and consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them. So to be clear, the disciples felt so strongly in their hate and disgust for the Samaritans that they wanted to burn their houses down. So Jesus needed to explain that dropping bombs is not the proper response to a lack of hospitality. And then, just a few verses later, we find Jesus picking up this topic again. So it seems to me that the violent tendencies and instincts of the disciples actually pushed Jesus to tell this parable because clearly the disciples had not internalized his nonviolent teaching and preaching. So this is how we should try to hear this parable today by substituting in the names of those who, who we hate, who we don't like, whose houses we might like to burn down Dr. Levine, to help us with this process, gives us an example, one very personal to her as a Jewish scholar. She writes, the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the few that makes an almost perfect translation in today's situation. Samaria today has various names, the West Bank, occupied Palestine, greater Israel, To hear the parable today, we only need to update the identity of the figures. I am an an Israeli Jew on my way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I am attacked by thieves, beaten, stripped, robbed, and left half dead in a ditch. Two people who should have stopped to help pass me by. The first a Jewish medic from the Israel Defense Forces. The second, a member of the Israel-Palestine Mission Network of the Presbyterian Church USA. But the person who takes compassion on me and shows me mercy is a Palestinian Muslim whose sympathies lie with Hamas, a political party whose charter not only anticipates Israel's destruction, but also depicts Jews as subhuman and responsible for all of the world's problems. The parable of the good Hamas member might be difficult for people in support of Israel's existence, but let us remember that if Jesus had been a Samaritan, we today would have the parable of the good Jew told in the streets of Ramallah. If people in the Middle East could picture this, we might have a better vision for choosing life. This parable has so much to teach us about our own embedded theology, our learned hate, our developed assumptions, and ultimately, about where our commitments lie. As Dr. Levine asks, can we finally agree that it is better to acknowledge the humanity and the potential to do good in the enemy rather than to choose death? Will we be able to care for our enemies, who are also our neighbors? Will we be able to bind up their wounds rather than blow up their cities? And can we imagine that they might that they might do the same for us? Can we put into practice not leaving the wounded traveler on the road? The biblical text, and our concern for humanity's future, tell us we must. So this morning, we ask ourselves what this parable would be named if we were to tell it. The parable of the good ex-spouse? Or the parable of the good oligarch? Or the parable of the good proud boy? The parable of the good Republican, Democrat, Libertarian? The parable of the good... Fill in the blank. But now we know it's not a game.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.MayflowerUCC.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.